Welcome back, listeners, to Branch 251, the podcast about the world's first criminal trial dealing with accusations of crimes against humanity allegedly perpetrated by Syrian officials. I am Fritz Streif. And I'm Kerem Somali. On today's episode, we will look back at the court sessions that took place last week. The court in Koblenz was in session for three days, from Wednesday until Friday. And today on the podcast, we have some comments from witnesses that testified last week in court and from commentators who followed last week's court session with uh, special interest because it was a significant week for the trial in a number of ways, uh, specifically for, for Syrians. Last week uh, was the first time during this trial that we have Syrian witnesses testifying. Uh, until last week, it had mostly been German police investigators, experts, officials, and representatives from the Migration and Refugee Authority. Last week, the 10th day of this trial, we heard for the first time uh, a witness with first-hand account uh, of what the allegations are all about. And that also meant that last week in court, a lot of Arabic was spoken for the first time in the courtroom. And that was a big moment for the many Syrian activists and uh, survivors that regularly come to Koblenz and attend the trial with, with great interest, but often can't understand what is being talked about because the court language is, is German. And of course, the fact that um, so much Arabic was spoken also meant that the defendants, the two accused, Anwar R. and Iyad A., had to listen to Syrian survivor witnesses talk about their experiences in their own language, having to listen to what they went through in connection to the accusations against them. And the court sessions were also important because uh, the two witnesses who testified uh, are very well-known Syrians. The first witness uh, who testified last week uh, is a Syrian filmmaker. His name is Firas Fayyad. I uh, talked to him this week to ask him about his experience testifying in Koblenz. And we'll listen to your guys' conversation here on the podcast uh, in a bit. His testimony was quite special last week in Koblenz. And it is also quite important from a legal perspective because it is central to prove some of the charges in indictment that relate to sexual violence. More about that specific part of his testimony in a bit. But first, what do we know about Firas Fayyad and his background? He's a 35-year-old Syrian filmmaker, and he's one of the joint plaintiffs in this case, uh, which is a civil party uh, joining the prosecution in the case against the accused. And now he's also a witness. He comes from a politically active family. During the 80s, uh, the Syrian regime detained three of his uncles and killed the fourth one. During his testimony, he said he's not really politically active himself, and he just wanted to be introduced as a filmmaker. For his studies, uh, Firas moved to Lebanon and then to France, where he studied filmmaking. And uh, when he finished, he returned to Syria in 2005. In 2011, in the beginning of the Syrian uprising, he wanted to document the protest and uh, how security forces uh, attacked protesters to disperse them using violence. And in April that year, he was picked up at some internet cafe in Damascus. Uh, he was tortured for a few days at the Air Force security branch and released later on. Uh, he decided to flee the country. And in August of 2011, he was detained at the airport, actually, trying to leave uh, from Damascus. And here comes his first interaction experience with Branch 251, Al-Khatib branch. In his testimony, he described the conditions of the imprisonment and torture, uh, things he had to go through. And eventually, after he was released, he managed to leave to Turkey. Uh, it became his base from which he would frequently travel undercover to Syria 
to work in his films. And his work was highly recognized. Uh, he was nominated twice for the Oscars in the Best Documentary Feature category uh, for his 2018 The Last Man in Aleppo and 2020 The Cave Documentary. We will be linking to his work in our show notes. Those who are interested should definitely uh, check it out. And so now, because he was detained in Branch 251 during the time frame of the indictment, 2011, he was called as a witness in this trial. And it was not really easy. It was not an easy task at all. Uh, it's not easy for anyone who survived the gruesome things that happened at the branch. But for Firas, there was this additional component. He was uh, unfortunately raped uh, while at the branch as part of his torture. He testified that when he arrived at Branch 251, he experienced what he referred to as the welcome party. And we did discuss this uh, wicked ritual in uh, one of our episodes, Hell on Earth. Uh, that's also what Firas Fayyad told the judges, uh, the welcome party. Uh, but perhaps the most significant part of his testimony was his account of how he was raped at Branch 51. He told the judges in Koblenz that on more than one occasion and during the torture sessions that his interrogators and torturers would uh, insert a stick into his anus. Obviously, this was very uncomfortable for him to talk about. Yeah, and the judge actually asked him multiple times how that uh, happened, how this act um, occurred. She did apologize to him, you know, acknowledging the very sensitive and, and personal nature of, of this kind of topic. But she said she needed to know exactly whether the object that was used in this act um, had entered his body. It was one of those moments where technical legal elements that are necessary to, to prove an allegation meet the very, very personal and painful experience of a victim. So she asked him, did you feel the stick inside of you? And Faraz said, yes, once. They pushed it inside me. He said he needed to get surgery in Turkey due to the injuries that resulted from that experience. Yeah, and on this, we spoke to someone about this important part of his testimony, just to better understand the significance of it. We spoke to Alexandra Lili Kather, who is a legal advisor at the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights, or ECCHR. She works there on international crimes and universal jurisdiction cases. She has been focusing lately a lot on crimes of sexual violence in her work. And here is the conversation that Fritz had with her. Hi, Fritz, how are you? Hi, Lily, good, how are you? I'm good. Um, we were just wondering if you could say something about the significance um, of last week's survivor testimony in court. Particularly last week's testimonies, um, the only one that includes sort of incidents of sexual violence and more specifically rape with an object, which was actually a very common form of violence that occurred in Assad's torture prisons. Sexual violence was such a powerful tool that the regime resorted to, um, both against women and men, um, in, in their attempt to, to violently oppress the political opposition in Syria. So we have not only rape with object, but also electrocution of genitals, um, forced abortion, forced nudity. So there's a whole array of, of um, crimes of sexual violence. And so for now, the only charge or the only count of, of rape and sexual violence is, is, is the incident that was testified about last week in court? 
to speak about grave violations against your sexual integrity um, and your sense of self and such an intimate violation um, is, of course, an extra challenge. And I think um, the the witness did extremely well, also um, in response to quite specific questions that, that were asked by the presiding judge. So, so the judge asked, for example whether the, the survivor could sort of feel the invasion of, of his body, which is the legal requirement um, for rape and international criminal law and also um, its German implementation, so that there has occurred an evasion of the body with either a part of the body of someone else or with an object. Mm-hmm. And in that case, it was, it was an object. Um, and I think the survivor did remarkably well in, in answering the quite detailed follow-up questions um, of the presiding judge. And so would you say that this charge stands um, after this this testimony? I mean, that we'll have to see in the, in the course of the trial. But as far as I can tell, it, it does very much stand, yes. Because I can imagine that if you have one incident hinging on the testimony of one witness that some would say is a rather thin accusation. Yeah, I mean, here, here there's sort of two, two parts or two angles on this. So first, um, right now, we are not, the, the, the court is not looking into rape as a crime against humanity. They're looking into a single incident of rape, and that's what they are trying to prove, and I think that will be for sure successful based on the, on the testimony of, of, of the survivor. Um, but what we should also bear in mind is that One single act of rape can be a crime against humanity. It doesn't need to be systematic and widespread in itself. We only need to prove that it has been committed as part of a widespread and systematic attack. So, so there are lots of other information that we can feed into the, into the trial or into the investigation um, to recognize that a single act of rape can also be part of a widespread and systematic attack and therefore a crime against humanity. Because, I mean, all the other crimes that have been committed in the very same crime site, so torture, um, severe body and mental harm, deprivation of liberty, they all happen in the very same geographical crime site. So why is a single act of rape or a single act of sexual coercion not as much part of the widespread and systematic attack as these other occurrences? Mm-hmm. And we simply don't need the widespread and systematic element to it. That's a, that's the first angle. And I think the second is certainly that sexual gender-based violence is, of course, as old as mass atrocities themselves. But they are often perceived as either collateral damage, something that happens because other mass violence occurs, or um, as isolated incidents rather than crimes that have been committed with a certain political aim or, or another aim. That's why it's super important that investigation and prosecution authorities, that they are also trained on trauma and sensitive approaches to investigations. Okay, well, thank you so much. That's uh, that's already a, a, a big help in um, starting to try to understand the specific difficulties and, and issues with sexual and gender-based violence in these kinds of cases. Thanks, Lily, uh, for being on the podcast. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll hear from you again in uh, one of the coming episodes. That would be wonderful. All the best for your podcast, and hopefully you speak soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks again, Lily, for speaking with us. Lily and her colleagues actually have a special announcement this week that wasn't public at the time of recording, but she assured me that um, it was an important announcement for her work. So we will 
make sure to include a link to that in the show notes. We will also include links in the show notes about some of the information she shared with us for additional reading for those of you who are interested in it. Yes, thank you, Lily. Uh, back to Firas Fayyaz's testimony. What we just learned from Lily is uh, from a legal perspective. His testimony is really crucial for the case because the evidence he gave is necessary to prove the charges against NYR, especially in regards to sexual violence. Yeah, that's how it seems. Uh, of course, we don't know exactly what other evidence the prosecutor might have at this point or might still get and introduce in the trial at a at a later stage. But for now, Firas Fayyad's testimony in this regard is definitely uh, crucial and central. Also, he ended his testimony in a really surprising way. He told the court he would be ready to forgive Anwar R if only he, Anwar R, would acknowledge that there was torture, that his experience, Faraz Fayyad's experience, and the experience of so many others was real. But that is, I think, unlikely to happen after what we heard from Anwar R a few weeks ago in his statement that his lawyers read out where he just flat out denied all charges and rejected all accusations. And about that, I talked to Firas Fayyad just to ask him how he looks back at his uh, testimony, his experience at court. I started by asking him how it was for him to be face-to-face with the accused in court, with uh, Anwar R. I'm, I'm, I'm not a person coming to revenge because I'm not a person of revenge. I'm a person who was going to the street for a reason. When I handled my camera and went to film in front of me everything that was fighting for a goal, for a reason, not just for me, just for uh, for for the next generation, for many Syrians who was in the same level, who was fighting for freedom of expression and for our dignity. Uh, so it's not about him exactly. He's a, a small fish in a bigger system. He should live with that and he has to understand it, how much is it painful uh, for every single person because we are not number. And for them, this is why they are all the time just cursing over us because for them, we are just a number. They, we are coming to them as a number. I told him to tell the truth that there is a millions of Syrians know this is truth. It's not just a personal story for, for, for me as a Firas Fayyad. And I couldn't help but tell him how brave it is just to step forward and tell the story about the sexual violence uh, he unfortunately had to experience at Branch 251. It, it lived with me for a long time. I didn't even talk to this for my family about the, um, the, the sexual violence assault that happened with me, the rape uh, and the, the harassment. Um, I've been I've been keeping that for myself. The thing, the thing here is also that I want to tell from my personal experience. I came with that after after a long time living with this pain inside me and inside my mind that failed to release this pain and to free myself. I have to talk about it. All of this is, is like a kind of shameful thing that used against the the the, the, the survival uh, and, and somehow to silence them. And I don't want to let anyone silence me. Thank you for us for speaking on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Looking at his testimony in court last week and in connection with what our guest mentioned just now earlier, this really is a complicated and complex issue, sexual violence in conflict generally, and now here specifically also in the Syrian context. Our earlier guest, Alexandra Lilikather, told us uh, about the legal aspects of it. 
and to understand uh, better the specifically Syrian angle to this, I talked to a former colleague of mine at the New York Times, Anne Bernard, who worked as a Beirut bureau chief for six years until 2018. Uh, she talked to many survivors, dozens of them, about their experiences. She told me that sexual abuse in Syrian torture prisons, both against men and women, has been really common. And I asked her why victims do not speak often of it, uh, although they speak about all other types of torture. This is what she told me. For women, particularly, there's a stigma associated with being the victim of a sexual assault. And in fact, there's even a physical danger. In traditionally conservative religious societies in Syria, it's considered a dishonor on the family if any woman is raped or sexually assaulted in the family. And sometimes male relatives have even killed such women in so-called honor killings. This had a chilling effect on the participation of women in the peaceful protest movement because sometimes even the fact of having been in prison led to an assumption that someone had been sexually assaulted, even if she hadn't been. There are documented cases of women enduring sexual assault as part of their torture and then being killed by their own family. This doesn't apply to all families. There were some families that later changed their view about the stigma because they saw that the government was weaponizing it against the people. But that remained relatively rare. Women have been through all kinds of sexual assaults, ranging from being routinely groped or grabbed or touched when they're being taken into a security branch, invasive searches, forced sexual intercourse with security officers or their friends. During our talk, Anne made a distinction between the experiences of men and women who she talked to about their experiences of sexual abuse as detainees uh, and, and, and different prisons and the uh, Syrian security services. When it comes to men, it's a bit more complicated. I think Syrian society has somehow been more willing to pretend that men in prison are not being sexually assaulted. I'm not sure why, maybe it has to do with a fear uh, among the survivors themselves that they would somehow be labeled as gay or weak. Um, although, again, it's not very logical because they do describe all kinds of really humiliating experiences from being forced to eat their own excrement to being forced to take part in sadistic role plays and all kinds of things. So in any case, the government was very expertly able to weaponize the particular fear and stigma around sexual assault. And she had some hopeful words to leave us with towards the end of your guys' conversation, which I found interesting also in terms of the historical comparison and uh, perspective that she offers. I think that the trial you're covering may have an effect on how these stories are documented and told. The fact that years later, people are starting to speak about these experiences and people are seeing that this can have some kind of an effect and bring some kind of modicum of accountability and public attention to these crimes, it may encourage others in the future to speak out, especially as people reach a safer place in their life. Um, they may also become more willing to talk about things that happen to them, just as we've seen with you know, decades-old atrocities like the Bosnian War or uh, Rwanda or even, let's say, the Holocaust, um, these types of stories continue to come out as society changes. And I think uh, there are some cases where in Syria, families have changed their view about the stigma around sexual assault. It's relatively unusual, but even conservative families, there are at least two that I've interviewed that chose to see women in their families who had been raped in prison 
similarly to the war wounded or those killed in war, just to say that this is something you went through as part of the cause. And we don't want to let the government turn that into a weapon against you or against our family. Thank you so much, Anne. Okay, the second witness is a prominent human rights lawyer, Anwar Albuni. We talked to him in the third episode of our podcast, the episode called The Two Anwars. Perhaps you should listen to that one before uh, continue on with this episode. Uh, Firas Fayyad was actually his client back in Syria. Anwar Albuni defended him before they both left Syria and ended up in Germany. And here they are again in this court in Koblenz. Anwar Albuni's testimony had three main topics and messages, I think, in addition to his personal story with the security services and being arrested and detained, including at Branch 251 that he uh, talked to us about. Firstly, from the people we talked to who were in court last week, we understand that Anwar Albuni made a few statements during his testimony about the wider importance of this trial. He reminded the judges and everyone else present in the courtroom that this trial for him and many other Syrians is about much more than the individual criminal responsibility of the two accused. He pointed out again that the Assad family and its close circle of trust have used detention and torture as principal tools to oppress and stay in power. The presiding judge actually told him a few times that he should make less general statements and give more concrete answer to the questions uh, being asked. And I get it. I, mean, I remember in, uh, when he told us that passionately uh, he's been waiting for this moment all of his life. Uh, you know, the guy has been working on, on such cases for decades and now there is finally some justice in the making and he's part of it. Uh, he needed to say those things. He's been waiting for it. I think the judges just needed to make sure that the procedure of her court in this specific trial regarding these specific allegations in the indictment would be respected. And the way that I experienced her presiding over this trial, the, the presiding judge, when I was in Koblenz, you know, she is actually really good at that, I, I found, I observed. Uh, she sort of knows how to strike the balance of giving some space and time when needed and at the same time keeping an eye on, on the rules when necessary. Okay, and then Anwar Elbunni moved on to testify about the so-called Caesar photos. Many of our listeners, I believe, would have heard this term before. But basically, we're talking about more than 50,000 photos that were taken and smuggled by a Syrian military police photographer. Uh, he defected and smuggled all of these files out of Syria. To keep his identity hidden, uh, he was named Caesar, and this is why they are called the Caesar photos. His job at his former post was to document the bodies of thousands of persons who died in detention or at a military hospital after detention. Uh, he smuggled the photos out of Syria and were provided to law enforcement agencies, including the Germans. We will link to more information on the Caesar photos in the show notes. The judges in Koblenz now asked Albuni as an expert witness about the particular system of numbering the corpses in these uh, photos that Caesar smuggled out of uh, Syria. Albuni explained to the judges that the numbering gives information about the amount, about the number of corpses and uh, their locations within the various detention facilities of the security uh, services um, in Syria, including Branch 251. So Albuni helped the court understand this system uh, a little bit better to interpret this uh, system of numbering to be able to use it as evidence, uh, as concrete evidence of the killings 
that are described in the indictment in this in this trial in this case. And then Albonni also debunked some of the information that Anwar R gave in his statement, uh, the one that was read by his lawyers. He told the judges that torture absolutely existed as a systematic tool prior to 2011. He said before 2011, it was used to extract information from suspects. And after 2011, during the uprising, torture became a tool for revenge. In his testimony, Albani contradicted Anwar R's claim on the point that Hafiz Mahlouf's notorious subsection 40 took control of Branch 251. Anwar R is saying that he was not the one running the show and he was not responsible for whatever happened at the branch when he was there. So the court now has an expert witness in Anwar Albuni uh, saying that Anwar R's statement and the main elements of Anwar R's statement are factually incorrect. You know, based on his decade-long experience as a Syrian human rights lawyer and activist and expert, and also his personal experience um, of having been detained in the Syrian uh, security service prisons um, multiple times. And the court will have to take that into consideration and um, it, you know, will enter it into its, uh, into its wide dossier of evidence. Yes. Two very different people here, two very different witnesses, uh, Faraz Fayyad and Anwar Albuni, but they were both persecuted and arrested and tortured for what they did. And that connects them in a way. One, Faraz Fayyad for making his films, and the other, Anwar Albuni, for defending human rights. And after Anwar Albuni's testimony on Friday last week, the court went into recess until June 24th. Yes. Before we close off this week's episode, I just want to go back to uh, something we talked about at the start of the episode, about the fact that last week was the first time that Arabic was uh, spoken in the courtroom and that those in the public gallery, the many Syrians that come and attend the trial, were able to follow the proceedings because uh, so much of their own language was spoken. And that is usually not the case because the court language is German. For some procedural reason, they don't get any of the headsets with the simultaneous translations that the court parties get to use, the judges and the prosecutors, etc. Um, and that is kind of strange, I find, and I still don't really understand why those are not given to the public gallery as well. Because when I was there, I saw there was plenty uh, of additional headsets uh, lying around. But there are some procedural reasons uh, for this, that people in the public gallery cannot use those. Some victims' organizations are now pushing for, for changing that. And I think that would be really great for, for the Syrians that, that come to the courtroom to, to follow the proceedings. And that brings us to the end of today's episode, uh, of today's court update. Uh, Fritz, what are we doing next week? Next week, we will use the time without court to dedicate a whole episode to survivors. We're speaking to two of them to find out more about their stories of surviving serious torture apparatus and how they manage to cope with their traumas and painful memories now in their daily lives, what they expect of this trial of justice and what their personal messages are for the two accused. As a former political prisoner, I can say that the prison experience is unforgettable. Yes, I have been released from the prison, but often I feel that the prison lives inside me. Anne will be talking to a third Syrian. She's the daughter of someone who until today is still in detention in Syria. She will be telling us about her story and the story of her missing father. 
Until then, thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like this podcast and you would like to support us and uh, push awareness for this podcast, you can subscribe to it. You can tell your friends and colleagues. You can share this episode and the podcast via all kinds of your channels and your networks. And if you feel like uh, supporting us further, you can hit the support this podcast button on our website. Thank you again for those who've done that in the past week. We really appreciate it. Branch 251 is exclusively listener supported. It is produced, created, and hosted by the two of us. I'm Fritz Streif. And I'm Karam Shomali. See you next time on Branch 251. See you then.